and welcome to this week's podcast. This is Josh Carlson with Hilltop Community Church, and I just want to say we're really glad that you joined us today. If you're new to the church, make sure to visit us online at hilltopchurchnv.com and fill out one of the online connection cards. We'd love to get connected with you and just say hello. While you're there, you can also find out more information about the church, get connected with Bible studies, submit prayer requests, and even find other sermons on the website as well. Now, make sure that you have your coffee, have your Bible, and your notepad ready to go, because we're about to get started with today's message. Well, good morning. There were a lot of folks coming in and out of the room as we were starting, and I was having a conversation with a friend, and uh, I looked at my phone a moment later, and my wife had texted me and said, hey, your microphone is on on the live stream. (laughs) And... uh, you know, I was like, God is always listening, but I don't need the people on YouTube doing it. Um, anyway, it's, gl- it's good to be with you this morning. We're, we're wrapping up the book of Revelation today, as Micah said. I went back and looked at it. I had to think about it. We started our study in the book of Revelation in April of, of uh, 2022, um, and there were 14 Sundays where we did other things, Christmas, Easter, guest speakers, those kind of things. But uh, 33 messages to cover the book. And uh, my goal for you this morning is kind of remind you what this thing is about. And so Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, the introduction to the book says, the revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testified to the word of God and the testimony of God. Jesus Christ, whatever he saw. In other words, John's going to receive this singular long vision that he's then going to record for us. And then it says in verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it, because the time is near. And so uh, when we go to the scriptures, it's really important that when we turn to the Bible, we understand that this is a very unique book. Um, this is not like any other book that you've ever read because this one is directly inspired cover to cover by the Holy Spirit of God through human offers, authors to record exactly what God wants recorded. We're not reading opinions. We're not reading nice little stories with morals. We're reading the word of God when we encounter the Bible. Okay, So this is God moving through human authors to record exactly what he wants recorded. And his objective is that his character would be revealed. We call the Bible, it's a special revelation from God. We have general revelation in, in the, the universe around us. Uh, when I was driving here this morning, the sun was kind of peeking through the clouds over here. And I, I don't know where you stand on those things, but when I see that kind of stuff, I just go, that's the majesty and creativity of God. It's very obvious to me that, that there is a God. Um, and then you know, you may say that sounds kind of surface level, but I've done the work and looked at lower, uh, not, not lower, but more scientific elements and all the way down into the details of the atom. And if you don't see a designer, I think you're missing something. Um, so there's that general revelation, but the Bible is a special revelation where God is uniquely moving to record who he is, the sin issue that exists between us and God, and then how he's going to repair that sin issue deal with it through the death of his son, Jesus. Jesus's life is another special revelation that God of eternity comes into the human body of Jesus Christ and God joins us in humanity and lives a perfect life, dies on our behalf to save us from our sin and give us new life. And so those are special revelations. Um, But when we turn to the book of Revelation here, it's speaking to a special prophetic forward-thinking, things that are going to take place in the future, a message that is given to John 
And we read here that those who read the prophecy aloud are blessed. Maybe if you've never read through the book of Revelation, today is the day. Just kind of sit down and read it. Um, And then it also says, blessed are those who keep the words of this prophecy. In other words, that there's an aspect where we want to be obedient to what the scriptures teach us. Okay, And so it would be a shame if we as a church were like the church in Ephesus who left our first love, thinking we could find life in religiosity rather than Christ. It would be a shame if, like the church in Pergamum, we held to the teachings of Balaam, a a synonym for Satan, sacrificing our lives to idols and committing sexual immorality, um, living for uh, the creation over the creator, and then that's almost always expressed with ignoring God's law on sexuality, one man, one woman, inside of covenant marriage for for life. And, And so we could fall for those types of things. Uh, We could be like the church in Thyatira that failed to repent from the wrongs that they committed when they were confronted. God could step into your life and say, here are some things that you need to deal with. Uh, You have a a sin issue that's existing. You have a pattern that's going on that we need to to deal with. Or you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord, and you find yourself constantly pushing back against God. Uh, The Spirit of God could move in you in that way, and you could ignore him. You could fail to repent. We could be like the church in Sardis that failed to be strengthened by the word of Christ. They had received the word of Christ. They had, uh, the word of God was, was among them, but they weren't being strengthened by it. We could go to the scriptures and hear what it has to say, but not take it to heart. We could be like the church in Laodicea that trusted in wealth and possessions rather than the work of Christ for life. And so those are a lot of ways that we could respond poorly to God's word. Um, My prayer is that we would do something different with this, that the word of Christ would dwell richly in us, and because of that, we would live different lives. Uh, The other thing that we've done is we've approached the book of Revelation. I've I've tried to lightly engage on systems of theology, so um, a post-millennial view or a pre-millennial view or an all-millennial view, and if you don't know what those are, you can look them up later. I don't have time right now. But uh, different understandings of sort of how to read this. And... Those systems of theology are fine and good, but I look at them as educated guesswork, not firm theological statements that salvation rests on. Um, I've completely avoided conspiracy theories. I I don't believe that we're supposed to read this and go, so-and-so is definitely the Antichrist, and this group of people is certainly the false prophet, you know, and the religious system. And so I've completely avoided conspiracy theories as I believe those lead to self-righteousness and hatred of others. Um... I've always noticed when people name somebody the Antichrist or the false prophet, they never do it looking in the mirror. Um, And so there's a tendency of self-righteousness and hatred of others, and those things are very antithetical to the teaching of Jesus. What my goal has been and is with any scripture is to expose what the text has to say about Jesus. Right, Expository teaching, we go through the Bible, and what does it say? And if Jesus is its central character, which was a claim that he made, he said all of the scriptures are about him. Jesus is the central character of the scriptures. We want to expose what does it have to say about Jesus. And so anytime we teach from the word of God, we want to meet the word made flesh. And it's also good to know that the Bible does tell us a lot about what's wrong with humanity. It has a lot to say about morality. It has a lot to say about the potential that we as human beings have. But the Bible is not, uh, in its essence, a book of morals leading to self-improvement. 
That's not the right way to approach the scriptures. You know, you can read the Old Testament stories and say, I wish, you know, I just want to have the faith of so-and-so or the courage of this other person. That's not the point. Um, The point is to see Jesus and then allow him to dwell richly in us so that we would be transformed from the inside out. The Bible is not a book of morals. It definitely has morals, but it's not a book of morals. Nor is the Bible a book among many that we can pick and choose what we like while leaving out what's culturally inconvenient. This is a favorite of many denominations and Christians, is to ignore the portions of Scripture which are difficult or would do something that would make you be in opposition to the culture that we live in. And so we don't want to do that either. The Bible is God's direct and special revelation of himself. The objective is not to better ourselves, but to be joined to the very source of goodness and allow him to transform us from the inside out. And so that's my desire is that we would all see Jesus as we read the scriptures and that we'd be inspired to love him, to follow him, and obey him. That word inspired actually means moved by a spirit. I pray that the Holy Spirit would move us to love Jesus, to follow Jesus, and obey him. And so let me pray with you this one more time in Revelation, and we'll, we'll finish it. So Father, we do. We seek you out, and we ask that your spirit would be moving among us so that we could learn more about you, so that we could understand the love of your Son the mercy that was given to us by him taking our place on the cross, the grace that is given to us in his resurrection from the dead and the new life that you freely give us. I pray that we would also understand that Jesus is the one through, uh, before whom everyone will stand in judgment. And there is not a person that has ever lived or will ever live uh, that after death will not stand at the judgment seat of Christ. We will all either be judged and condemned for rejecting him or judged and reward, rewarded for following him. And so may we understand these things about your son. May we reverently worship your son, not just, not just with words and not just with songs, but with our lives. Father, I pray for those here this morning that have not made a decision to follow your son Jesus, that there are some things within the scriptures that are very confrontational to us. Um, Jesus is, your son is loving and he is kind, but he is no nonsense when it comes to sin. And so I pray that for those who are here this morning and, and as the word of God confronts them, Um, that they would see their need of what Jesus has done for them and that they would trust in his death, burial, and resurrection. Guide us this morning in Jesus' name, amen. So these last verses here, we'll start in verse 6 of Revelation chapter 22. It says, Then he said to me, so we have an angel speaking to John the Apostle. He said, These words are faithful and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. This is Jesus speaking. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Again, the Bible is unique. It says that the Lord God is the, is the spirit of the prophets. 
That when we read prophecy, uh, when we read about what God has proclaimed to be true and is going to be true in the future, uh, this isn't somebody that ate bad mushrooms, right? Uh, this, is, this is God's spirit interacting with them and showing them something unique and special about God's character and what's going to take place in the future. We also see that Jesus' return is certain. He says, look, I am coming soon. That word soon seems like maybe not the word that I would use because 2,000 years feels like a long time to me. But God is patient. Um, and the reason that he waits in coming back is, you know, if he'd have come back 42 years ago, I wouldn't be alive. Um, and so he's, he's allowing there to be the right number of people born. He's allowing in his sovereign will to allow the right number of people to be saved. He's allowing this amazing heaven and this new earth and this new Jerusalem, this new city that he's building and preparing for us to be filled with the souls of those who trust his son and love him. Um, that's God's grace. That's his sovereign plan. His timing is not necessarily something that I need to understand because I know his character. But he says he's coming soon. And then he says, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And so that's a message. Don't, don't disregard the words of Revelation. Because to do so would be to disregard Christ. Uh, to go, you know, that book's kind of difficult. And I don't know if we should go there. And I don't really have time for that. It's a little bit confusing. Or maybe it has a lot of passages that I'm uncomfortable with. Because it calls out sin pretty straightforward. Um, there's a lot of places where it would just really be bad conversation in the culture that I live in. So we don't want to disregard the words of any portion of Scripture, even those genealogies. We don't want to disregard the words of Revelation because to do so would be to disregard Jesus. And so his word, when we go to the Scriptures, is another unique part of his Scripture, 2 Timothy 2.13. His word is given to us that we might be taught to see our sin. We would be inspected that's the other thing. is that We don't go to the scriptures to figure the scriptures out. We go to the scriptures and they figure us out. They let us know the issues that exist within us. And that when that issue is brought to our attention, we can then learn not just what's wrong, but we can learn what's right. This is very important. If you're a parent and all you ever do is tell your children what's wrong and never give them the tools to do what's right, that's bad parenting. And so God is our father. He lets us know what's wrong, but he also tells us this is what's right. This is what's best. And this is how you do it, right? So that's what the scripture is given to us for, to teach us here are the issues. Here's a better way. Here's how we live the better way. Jesus being the ultimate example of that. But the other thing is that Jesus' return is central to our identity, our motivation, and our hope as his followers. If you've never read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, take a look at it. It has a lot to do with the resurrection, the new body that we receive, the promises that are made to us. Those things are central to our identity because my identity is not this body that I live in. Um, this body is going to decay and be tossed aside and I'm going to be given a new physical body that my spirit will indwell. That new body will have no sin in it. That's the glory of the new heavens and the new earth is that everyone who is there has no sin in them because the sinful parts of us have been removed and destroyed and we're given only what is best and right. And so this is central to our identity. It's central to our motivation. It says that I do what I do here on earth, not based upon the urges and desires of my flesh, but based upon what's right and good in God's eyes. 
My motivation needs to have, be changed. God gives me a, a new heart. That's still, I've still got the one I was born with. It's still ticking. But I've give, been given a new spiritual heart, a new set of desires. And my hope in him is, is that all of the brokenness that I experience in, on, in this body, in this life, and on this earth, that all of that is going to have a purpose to transform me into the image of his son, but it's also all going to not be part of the life eternal. And so his return is central to my identity, my motivation, and my hope as his follower. And the other thing is that, that this does for us is Christians, we should live ready for Jesus' return. Um, the imagery of a bride is used in the scriptures of who we are as in relationship to God, right? And that doesn't mean like, Keith, you'd look really weird in a dress. Um, so would I, right? Like, that's not actual, I'm going to put you in a dress, um, but it's imagery of the, someone who is set aside and marked out as belonging to another, right? So I am engaged and I am going to be joined to him at the marriage supper of the lamb. And so I want to live ready for him to return. I want to live set apart and different. I'm going to forsake all other suitors, all idols, and by his grace, I'm going to live a holy and set apart life that belongs to him, Right? When you're engaged to somebody and, and you're, you're out on the town and somebody else kind of makes a pass at you, you know you're taken. And you let them know too. And so we should live that way with Christ. I am taken. And I, I want no other and I will have no other. He is my God. I am his bride. I am to be joined to him in that way. If you're not a Christian and you've not trusted in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for forgiveness, he wants to forgive you of your wrongs. If you've not trusted him for redemption, he wants to buy you away from living in sin and make you his child. And I genuinely pray that you would do that. But just as important is to see those who have trusted Jesus to grow and remain steadfast to him. We need, as Christians, the, we need to make up our mind on this. I am his, he is mine. I am forsaking all other suitors. suitors. There are no idols in my life, and if I find one, I want it gone. Because Jesus is worthy, he will return, he loves, he saves, he redeems, and he transforms and so for the Christian, we say we live for no other, we worship no other, not even an angel. In John, in verse 8, it says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had shown them to me. But he, the angel, said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you, your brothers, the prophets, and those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Um. Within Christian history, there have been several different places where the worship of angels has taken place. Um, the book of Colossians addresses it. Paul is dealing with the people that are, they're kind of like our society. They, they like the salad bar of, of religion. And they grab a little bit from here and they grab a little bit from there and they do this synchristic thing. And so there was like this weird combination of Jewish legalism and worship of angels and uh, this bizarre thing that they were doing there in, in Colossae. But we do the same thing in our culture. People grab a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of the other thing. And angelic worship is something that people in our uh, day struggle with as well. And it's to a certain degree understandable. 
um, like when Isaiah or Ezekiel or John, when they see the throne of God and they see God in his glory, they, they don't actually see him. They see the angelic beings around him and God's glory is actually reflected through them. And so you can kind of understand why they might mistake um, the reflection of the glory for its source. Um, but we don't want to do that. We want to we worship the source of righteousness and of glory, not the reflection of it. And so we want to worship God. Now, when we talk about worship, this is an act of honoring the merit and excellence of another. That's, that's what you're doing. Um, we do that in our culture, too, a little bit. Like even in our workplaces, right? Somebody has a good quarter. They meet a sales mark. Uh, they do all the things they're supposed to be doing. Maybe they get a promotion and an award on their desk. That's kind of like an act of worship. We're saying that the excellence and the merit of what you've accomplished deserves to be acknowledged. Okay? We're doing that with God. When we worship Jesus, we do that in song, but it's far more important to worship him in spirit and in truth. And so we worship Jesus most properly, the highest and best, when the core of our being, our spirit, is connected to him. Um, and, and I think this is important, that this connection is not just emotional, as though worship were some hyper-ecstatic state of a emotionalism. Um, resulting in inconsistent, fickle living. Um, there's different personality types. Some of us are more rational. Some of us are more emotional. Uh, but worship is not simply some emotional expression. That's why I, I, I don't think that we should sing songs, and I don't think that I should teach lessons that manipulate your emotions. Because the, the emotional manipulation doesn't result in lasting change. You might have a spiritual high, you might feel like something neat took place, and then you're wondering where it went, and you're on this weird roller coaster instead of having some steadiness. Now, there is emotion in connecting with God, there's no question. God understands our emotions, and he connects with us in that way. But it's not just an emotional thing. This connection of our spirit to him is not simply an act of human will or effort to obey, as though we could please God through finite human effort. It's not just I'm going to try my hardest and grit this thing out and, and every time I want to do the wrong thing, I'm just going to, in my own strength, do my best to do the right thing. That's not worship because you're depending upon yourself. And worship is not just a cerebral agreement with the truth as though human intellect could figure out God. What true worship is, is uh, to worship God in spirit and in truth. It acknowledges all three, mind, emotion, and will, seeking Jesus and his way. And so what worship, it, it happens when Jesus regenerates our spirit. Uh, the, the scriptures teach that we're spiritually dead until Jesus saves us and makes us alive. So Jesus regenerates our spirit. He brings our spirit to life, the innermost part of our being. Then he transforms our mind and changes the way that we think. He steadies and gives purpose to our emotions. So when I'm angry, when I'm depressed, when I'm sad, when I'm ecstatic, whatever I am, I process it in conjunction with what God says to be true. So it... Worship happens when Jesus regenerates our spirit, he transforms our minds, he steadies and gives purpose to our motion, and by his spirit, he gives us self-control to follow him and his ways. One of the fruits of the spirit is self-control. I grew up kind of thinking that 
you know, like this, I needed to be, needed to be self-sufficient. Like that's kind of drilled into us. Needed to be self-sufficient, needed to do the right thing. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, until you think that you actually have in your own flesh the ability to have self-control. And what I needed was not to be self-sufficient, but to be Christ-sufficient. I didn't need to be self-sufficient. I needed the Holy Spirit to empower me and make me sufficient. And so that's true worship. Jesus regenerates our spirit. He transforms our minds. He steadies and gives purpose to our emotions. And by his spirit, he grants us self-control to follow him and his ways. And then what the angel tells John next is that we cannot worship Jesus and ignore the Bible. Verse 10, then he said to me, don't seal up the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is near. Let the unrighteous go on in unrighteousness. Let the filthy still be filthy. Let the righteous go on in righteousness and let the holy still be holy. Don't read that wrong and think fatalism. That's not what it's trying to teach you. What it is teaching us and what the scriptures show us time and again is to not heed the words of the Bible or the book of Revelation and continue in wickedness will result in condemnation and the second death. Condemnation being we're judged based upon our works. They fall short of the glory of God. The second death being instead of going enter, entering into the new heavens and the new earth, we're cast into the lake of fire. We commonly call that hell. The other thing to recognize is that you know, Jesus said there's two paths, the one that's wide and leads to destructive, the one that's narrow and leads to life and salvation. The one that's wide, um, we sort of pave that one ourselves. Uh, the path that leads to destruction is paved by humanity. It's paved by our efforts, our will, our desires, our motives. Um, the one that's paved to life and to righteousness and to eternal blessing, that one's paved by Christ. And so the question is, which road are we on? Are you on the road of unrighteousness, filthiness? Are you on the road of righteousness? Are you, are you hoeing the way? Are you making your way on your own strength, your own ability, thinking that you can make yourself right with God? Or maybe you don't even care about getting right with God and you just want to live in a sensual way. Both of those lead to destruction. But the path of righteousness that Christ has laid out before us, that's a matter of keeping in step with the Spirit. That's a matter of following Jesus. And so if you've been with us during the study of Revelation, you haven't turned your life over to Christ, I gotta ask a question, what are you waiting for? Do you love your sin too much? You don't wanna give it up? You think that it really has life for you. Maybe you have false assumptions about God. You think things like, he'd never accept me until I did this. That salvation is something that we merit or we earn. That's not the scriptures. That's not Jesus. Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners. He, he, he came to us and he took our place on the cross while we were unrighteous and filthy and had nothing in us that was good or worthy of being saved. But out of his goodness and out of his love, he looked upon us and wanted us, wanted you. 
and went there and died for you. So maybe you love sin and you need to realize that that love of sin is keeping you from salvation and it really doesn't have life for you. Maybe you have wrong assumptions about God or maybe your connection to the way of the world is too strong. You just don't really want to think that different from everybody else. I mean, everybody else believes I pray for you today that if you've got something like that holding you back, today is the day you kneel at Jesus' feet and say, thank you. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for taking away my sin. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for making me new. Because Jesus is coming soon. That's what he says in verse 12. He's coming soon. It's either on the clouds to judge the earth or at the end of your days on this earth. Either way, whether he comes back this afternoon or you lose your life, your physical body dies, you will stand before Christ. He is the judge of the living and the dead. The question is when you stand before him, will it be judgment and condemnation or reward and thanksgiving? He's coming soon. Verse 12, look, I am coming soon and my reward is with me to repay each person according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, a statement of his eternity, his eternal nature. Jesus has always existed. He will always exist. If he didn't, he wouldn't be God. And he says, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and may enter the city by its gates. Blessed are those who, like the bride preparing for her wedding, is making sure that she belongs to him alone. Blessed is the one who says, I want to to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, and because I want to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, I am constantly allowing him to search me, O Lord, and know my heart. I am constantly letting him show me the ways within me that are hurtful towards him and others. I'm always confessing those things as wrong and sinful and I'm asking for him to develop in me a clean heart so that I could be like his son Jesus washing my robes and the washing is all done by him he is the one that gives us the right to the tree of life it's his merit it's his glory it's his work that allows us to enter the city gates of the new Jerusalem, the new heaven, and the new earth. Then he says, outside are the dogs. And I've told you that there's a lot of places where scripture is metaphorical. This is definitely one of them. Like there's dogs in heaven. I mean, come on. No. Um, (laughs) Dogs was a a way of saying an evildoer. Um, If somebody tells you you have the morals of a dog, it's not a compliment. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers. Sorcerer being a word for those who practice um, the drug use for the purpose of being intoxicated um, and whether they know it or not are entering into a spiritual state of seeing uh, demonic things that are going on around them. If you use illicit drugs, you are asking for demonic presence in your life. That's what sorcery means there. The sexually immoral, again, one man, one woman inside of covenant marriage for life. First uh, Corinthians chapter six, verse nine through eleven, it describes the four other types of sexual sin. Uh, 
There's adultery, people who are married having sex with people who aren't their spouse. There's fornication, people who aren't married having sex with each other. There's homosexuality, people of the same sex engaging in sex together. And then it talks about the effeminate, which in the Greek culture was a man dressing up as a woman to have sex with other men. Um, so it identifies those things. The scripture also, uh, multiple places, makes, makes it very clear of other types of sexual sin. Uh, murderers, that's those who would take the lives of another or harbor hatred. Somebody that's willing to say, I want nothing to do with this group of people because of their political view. I want nothing to do with this group of people because of their race. I want nothing to do with this group of people because of their some superficial characteristic that has nothing to do with righteousness. You have to understand that the gospel is the most inclusive message that's ever existed. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. It doesn't matter if you're slave or freeborn. It doesn't, it doesn't matter who you are or where you've come for. The love of Christ is for you. But never at the expense of righteousness. Outside are the idolaters, those who worship the creation over the creator, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Uh, falsehood, that, that's the idea that, Jesus is going to say it here in a minute, it's the idea of us determining truth for ourselves. Um, it's the idea of relativism. And, and as, as a church, I think it's okay for us to look at our culture around us and go, there are some areas where we can kind of give. Uh, you know, when it comes to people's dress and, and, and those types of things, like I, I can get past that stuff. Styles of music can change. There's all sorts of things that can change, and they're not, they're not salvation things. They're not truth things. But for the church to accept relativism in any form is, is not Christianity. Um, it's not. To say your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. No, Jesus is the truth, the way, and the life. There's no way to the Father except through him. I don't have my truth. At least I don't want my truth. I want Jesus. And so this relativism thing, you have to can it and throw it in the garbage. It's nonsense. Verse 16, he says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to attest these things to you for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. He's saying, I am the Messiah. Uh, he makes the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end comment earlier, saying that he is God. And then these statements are, he is human and he is the Messiah. And Jesus is one of a kind. Both the spirit and the bride say, Come. Let anyone who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take wa the water of life freely. What are you drinking? What quenches your thirst? Practicing evil and harming other people? Drugs and alcohol, the occult, sexual immorality. Is that where you go to quench your thirst? 
Somebody hurts you, somebody says something negative to you, you find yourself on pornography one more time because that's where life is. It's not. Do you quench your thirst with hatred of others? There's constantly a finger pointing at someone else and never a solid look in the mirror. Do you quench your thirst with the creation over the creator? Material possessions, pleasure, wealth. Too much food. Have you gone hook, line, and sinker for falsehood and you think that the things that our culture teaches is really where it's at? Where do you go to quench your thirst? Listen to what God's grace towards you. This is from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. It says, He, Jesus, has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time. This has now been made evident through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. You know what really quenches the thirst of your soul? To know that God loves you. That he wants you. That his son Christ Jesus came to save you. That he's called you. He knows your name. He knits you in your mother's womb. And he calls you to him. And he says, you don't have to earn it. I want to give it to you freely. And then I want to give you purpose. And I want to bless you with everything that you need for that purpose. And you know this is true because of what Jesus did for you. He abolished death. He took your sin and the certificate of death that was due to be paid by you and he nailed it to the cross so that you could be free from that. He's bought you life, not just right now, but forever through his gospel. Would you like to thirst no more? You just have to thank God who rescues, redeems, and stores. You need, to you need to trust Jesus. You need to understand that those who don't trust Jesus and those who trust in human ability, effort, and worth for salvation, those folks are cursed according to the scriptures. And so verse 18, I test testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share of the tree of life and the holy city, which are written about in this book. He who test about, testifies about these things says, this is Jesus, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with everyone. Amen. The last part of this is that it's dangerous to pick and choose the parts of the Bible that we like and remove, the ones that don't fit our cultural moment or individual, 
individual pride. And so we need to approach the word of God and, and Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom and teaching, admonishing one another through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so we don't add to or take away from Jesus' words, because to do that, to add to the scriptures or take from the scriptures, that twists God's character. It demeans Jesus' work, and it attempts to elevate oneself to the place of Savior, Lord, and God. If you look at the, the cults, the denominations that have added to the scriptures, every time what they do is the deification of man, not Jesus. One of them even says you can become a god. And so to twist or demean the work of Jesus and elevate oneself to the place of God, this is quite literally um, a condemned or a damned fool's approach to Jesus. The scripture has a lot to say about how we can be fools. I'll I'll give you three of them. Uh, The first thing that the fool says is that there is no God. The fool is an atheist, either actual or practical. Actual atheism is I say there is no God. Practical atheism is I live like there's no God. The fool is a humanist. We can be good without God. The fool also says, eat, drink, and marry, for tomorrow we die. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. The fool is a materialist and believes that all there is to life is what we can see and touch and ignores the spiritual part of who we are. The fool despises instruction. He says, she says, I have it figured out. The fool is a legalist, believing that they know better than everyone else, including God. The harshest words that Jesus had and actions that Jesus had were towards legalists. The way that he interacted with the Pharisees was absolutely no nonsense. Because what the legalist is, is a religious humanist. They believe that through their religious actions, they can make themselves good. And so, uh, I, I pray that we are not fools. I said, Billy Graham has a really good message. It's titled, Whose Fool Are You? You should look it up on YouTube later. And he does more in depth what the Bible has to say about being a fool. But we could be a fool and that we could say there's no God. We could say eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. We could say we have no need of instruction. Um, But we could also be a fool for Christ. So whose fool are you? See, I'm a fool for Jesus because I say I know nothing apart from you. I'm a fool for Jesus because I say I have nothing apart from you. I'm a fool for Jesus because I know I could never be saved apart from you. I'm a fool for Jesus because I could never, ever live to the fullness of the image of God that's been instilled in me on my own abilities. And so I'm a fool for Jesus. I'm a fool for his word. Pray with me. Father, I pray that we would be like 
the church in Smyrna, unafraid of what the world might throw at us for rejecting its teachings, unafraid of standing out as those who reject idolatry and sexual immorality. I pray that we'd be like the church in Philadelphia, that though we may have little power here on this earth, it feels like the ultimate power resides with you. And so we needn't trust in ourselves. Make us unafraid. Let us know that you have the ultimate power. Help us reject the teachings of idolatry and sexual immorality that are so prevalent in this world that we live in, in favor of your son Jesus' transformative message of self-sacrifice for the forgiveness and righteousness of others. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in and joining us today. We hope that this message encourages you to continue taking steps towards seeking and understanding God's truth. The dream is that Hilltop is a home for the growing family of God, and we're so glad that you are a part of the family.